It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Sego Ani Bojo Kwekwe Tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. And being across the country and listening, it might come in handy because today's guest uh, actually comes from the West Coast. He's uh, born and raised on First Nation in the West Coast and in between Vancouver Island and the mainland. And uh, he is here to talk about a couple of books that he has out. But he's also um, an Indigenous relations trainer. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, too, because I think that kind of led him into this role of an author. His name is Bob Joseph. Bob, welcome to the program this morning. Gilakasla. Thanks for having me. And it's always nice to hear an Indigenous language being spoken, so thank you for doing that in your in your native tongue. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Kwakwala, it's a hard one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and thanks for saying that, Kwakwala. Uh, you know, um, there are how many, do you know how many West Coast-based, uh, when I say West Coast, I mean Vancouver, Vancouver Island kind of Indigenous communities there are, or uh, nations? When we think about uh, British Columbia, it's got seven major language families, okay. over 30 different dialects, which mm. are different as Spanish is to Japanese. And then there's over 206 bands all across uh, British Columbia. So it's really a culturally diverse group of indigenous peoples. And and some of those great masks that they have from the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, definitely proud of our uh, totem poles. And uh, I can only speak about where I come from. Again, seven major language families. But um, the the masks are owned by families and Mm -hmm. they display them in potlatches and and uh, they they fight over those masks, you know, ownership and control over I those bet. images like Coca-Cola defends its brand. <laughs> so it's kind of a neat culture piece that way. Well, when you say that, of course, those masks uh, make them partly uh, so fascinating is that they they are mobile. Some of them open up and pr- and have other masks inside them and and those kind of things. And they can't be light to wear if they're being worn for something. No, no. If you ever uh, get out to the West Coast, we'll definitely let you try on a transformation mask. Mm. Some of them are are small and really maneuverable and Mm. easy to use, and others, you've got attendants making sure you don't fall over and (laughs) trying to help you through the the ceremony if it's uh, (laughs) progressing. Um, Now, if you don't mind, you mentioned totem poles, and and Mm. I I thought that, that the proper name was just totems and not totem poles. Is that... Have you heard that? I have heard a little little bit about that. We mm. we call them poles and mm. even drop the totem. So there's mm. a few variations. And that, yeah. again, is one of the neat things about yeah. working with uh, Indigenous peoples. They all sort of have their preferences. And when it comes to terminology, yeah. and Indigenous peoples, First Nations, yep. bands, tribes, you know, there's so much um, cultural diversity that we expect a lot yes. of difference. And so well, that's the fun thing about hearing some of the the difference in terminology and what people call stuff and how they react. and But I guess it also adds to, to some of the confusion, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Because yeah. from exactly what you said, people, I think a lot of uh, non-Indigenous people are not sure what is the appropriate thing to say or how to call people. Mm-hmm. And even referring to, like you said, a nation or a tribe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll get into your book because we're certainly going to talk about the Indian Act, which a mm-hmm. lot of is what you're referring to mm-hmm. uh, with your first book, which is 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act mm-hmm. and uh, Helping Canadians Make Reconciliation with Indigenous Peoples a Reality. Mm-hmm. And I believe that came out of your training sessions, did it not? It did. It did. You know, so one of the things we always do is is talk to people about the history. Yeah. And um, it's interesting because people think they actually have a lot of knowledge. And so one of the, <laughs> one of the exercises we put them through right at the start of our uh, training is we ask each individual to come up with a, a date in history mm-hmm. that's specific to mm-hmm. Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. and just a short sentence to describe it. Yeah. And then we get them to stand up and line up chronologically and I'll actually create a flip chart of right. of dates on a, yeah. on a flip chart. And I'll divide it up from 1867 to 1982 because that's when we confederate and then we patriate right. the Constitution. And um, we, we often find a few dates early, and I mean before Confederation, you know, mm. uh, Columbus' discovery of the New World and, you know, Jacques Cartier mm. and the War of 1812. Yeah. And then you get a whole bunch of recent dates, the 2010 yep. Winter Olympics, mm. the Pan Am Games, <laughs> uh, 
you know, Oka, those kinds of dates start to appear on yeah. the timeline. But what you always find, and this is, it's uncanny, it's across the country, um, there's not a lot of dates in the middle. 1867 to 1982 is really sparse. Usually we get one date, maybe the 60s scoop or, mm. you know, something like that. And so um, going through that exercise is yeah. just our way of saying, you know, we don't know what we don't know, and yeah. that's what we're going to help you understand as we go through this uh, but that was that, but that was deliberate <laughs> also right it was it was deliberate on on the part of the canadian government uh, to to sort of not bring our, our our issues forward part of the indian act is is about uh, burying the the traditions making sure that we weren't performing things putting us into residential schools all of that stuff was it was deliberate on the part of of the government correct yeah yeah um and it was all designed to uh well the indian act is a uh post-Confederation mm-hmm. assimilation policy. That's yeah. what it was designed to do. Mm-hmm. And it really, um, you know, banning the potlatches mm-hmm. and going to residential schools yeah. and not being able to sell stuff off of reserves yep. and women losing status. Yep. I mean, all of that stuff is designed to, uh, um, you know, as the uh, forefathers would say, kill the Indian and yep. the child when they were talking about yeah. residential schools. Yeah. And, and if you did that... Um, you know, the, the common theory, for example, in British Columbia about why we didn't conclude land claims yes. in the 1840s, this guy James Douglas comes yes. into the province, uh, was that we ran out of money. But when you look at sort of the, the timing, and there's a professor there out of UBC, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Paul Tennant from mm-hmm. University of British Columbia, who put together a book called Aboriginal Peoples and Politics. Yes. And in his book, Tennant says it wasn't that we ran out of money. That was the final sort of death nail in the treaty-making coffin at that time. He said it was this this idea of assimilation. Mm. If you could get them to assimilate... You wouldn't have to worry about you it. You wouldn't have to do new treaties. Yeah. You wouldn't even have to honor historic treaties. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have to... Uh, there would be no fishing yeah. rights, no right. hunting rights. All yep. of that would be dealt with yep. in assimilation. So mm. we um, quietly uh, worked our way through that. Canadians largely unaware. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I still have... Uh, you know, participants who are surprised and shocked at sort of the range of influence that the Indian Act has. And I can I remember to one of my first sessions in the mid-1990s, I had a lady come up to me in a break, you know, tears streaming down her face. She was upset. And so I, you know, politely said, what, what's the matter? And she said, you know, I, I can't believe anything you're telling me. Um, I, I, there's no way my church would be involved in mm-hmm. something like residential schools. Right. And I said, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way, but this is very truthful stuff, and you're going to learn a lot more about it as time mm-hmm. sort of marches on. And, yeah. and uh, you know, it was just sort of this moment where I realized, yeah, they really need help sort of filling in that post-Confederation to the late 1960s where we were still very aggressively trying to forcibly culturally assimilate. You know, uh, it's not surprising that so many Canadians have no clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unfortunate. <laughs> really unfortunate, mm-hmm. but when you when you see things like indigenous people were not even allowed to perform mm-hmm. in traditional regalia mm-hmm. off the community, mm-hmm. well, it's no wonder people have no idea up until around the 1950s. As it looks like around 1950s when things started to finally open up a little bit. You know, not being able to hire, hire lawyers. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean. How yeah. you can't have you know you can't go into certain uh, areas uh, at pool halls or off limits. I mean mm-hmm. all kinds of things. Well, then how are well, no wonder people have no clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean you can say it's the Indian Act, but let's face it, people wrote this. Mm-hmm. People wrote this. Yeah, the the legislation. Yeah, yeah, and it is a government for yep. the people and by the people. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and I think that's what uh, reconciliation is all about: is mm. taking that you know very sobering look back and saying okay. Maybe we didn't uh, get off to a great start and we need to acknowledge and atone. And, and that, that is certainly work that we've seen happen on residential schools with mm. a you know, formal apology by yeah. a conservative prime minister yeah. in the House of Commons, Stephen Harper, and um, you know, baseline compensation paid out to survivors. And, yeah. Um, so you know, we're definitely starting down that road of yeah. uh, reconciling that past with today. And, and really, what do we want the country to look like in another 50 or 100 years? And 
Yeah. So what do you think it is that you are bringing, uh, aside from indigenous knowledge and presenting this, because it sounds like it's something that you're doing that is applicable right across the board for Mm -hmm. regardless of nation Mm -hmm. that you're referring to. And as you say, you've been talking to outside the country and other places in the world. Mm -hmm. What do you think that you are doing that is that is applicable to all areas? I think um, it's really uh, the the relationship piece that we need these relationships. Everybody needs these relationships. And uh, so I'm trying to really bring people together and get them to have more understanding and that we can actually learn from each other and maybe change the way we even do things. I know, uh, you know, one of the common things about the Indian Act, it was really put into place on the basis that they live short, brutish lives and what we have to do is help make things better for them. That would have been, you know, early post-Confederation assimilation mm. policy justification. And uh, so I try to get people to, to think about that a little bit, you know, because where I come from, we, we have those big masks yes. because we had a lot of time to do art. Right. We were, and, and in that sense, when you start to think about really rich cultures with lots of wealth, resources, and leisure time, with the ability to do art... You, you definitely get that in fish cultures. And so you think yeah. about the lifestyle, of, the life cycle of a salmon, mm. um, nine weeks, you know, a, a group like Kwantlen First Nation on the lower mainland can get everything they need in nine weeks or less and, mm. um, and really have the rest of the year to focus on education and healthcare and artistic expression, all of the things that are the hallmark mm. of really sophisticated, really advanced yeah. societies with lots of wealth, resources, yeah. and leisure time. And so... Uh, you know, people will say, but, you know, we're, we, we were helping make things better. And, and my, you know, I talked to my dad about this and yeah. he would always say, if anybody ever says that right. they're helping make things better for yeah. us, you, you tell them we were working less than nine weeks a year <laughs> and we weren't paying taxes. And you ask them how what they have is better, <laughs> seriously. Right. So I, I think there's honestly that we can learn from mm. each other and think about the world differently and see other perspectives, um, you know, for the governments and um, businesses particularly in land and resource development, yeah. one of the things that we really bring is economic certainty. Um, you know, we try to tell people that they're, they're not against development, but it can't be development at all costs. Yeah. And if, if you're able to get to that point, they definitely want to be involved. Those are their territories, their lands and resources. And, you know, they're getting really tired of the, uh, the federal Indian affairs, chronically underfunded sort of government programs and, and so a lot of the communities um, are really interested in economic development yeah. and taxation and other things that would allow them to be self-governing and look after yeah. their people in culturally appropriate ways. So in that sense, we really, um, you know, when we're, we're talking to those audiences and we, we will talk differently, you know, we've, we've done work with the Ontario SPCA and mm. rescue dogs mm. and that kind of stuff. But for those audiences, we, we're really selling economic certainty. If you want to, if you want to do stuff without a huge amount of hassle, go talk to them. It's their right. their territory. They have an interest. They'd love to probably get some of their people working. Um, and uh, if you don't do that, you end up, you know, with legal challenges and big big battles and blockades and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Sure. So I think there's a couple of ways to look at the question. What it, what do I bring? Bob, you've uh, you've you've left us with some things to speak about already. We do have to take a pause and take a break, but we're going to uh, pick it up right after the break and talk more about some of these things that you have been mentioning and and your books. We'll get more into your books a little bit later. We are speaking with Bob Joseph. He is an Indigenous relations trainer as well as an author of 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, as well as his new book, Indigenous Relations, which just, just came out, just came out. Insights and tips and suggestions to make reconciliation a reality. So don't go away. We'll be right back on Element FM with Moment of Truth right after this. And welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. Our guest in the studio today is Bob Joseph. As mentioned earlier, he is an Indigenous relations trainer. He's also an hereditary chief on the West Coast from his nation, and he is the author of two books, the first one, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. And the second one, which just came out a little while ago, Indigenous Relations, Insights, Tips, and Suggestions to Make Reconciliation a Reality. And it's a pleasure having Bob in the studio so we can continue our conversation. And how deep do you want to go into the rabbit hole 
to yeah. to get to the bottom of all this stuff, right? Yeah, and I actually uh, say that to my learners sometimes mm. when I'm with them. You know, as we uh, work our way through the content, mm. the, the questions get more and more complex. Yeah. And, yeah. and at some point during the day, usually I'll stand there and say, ah, now we're getting to a really great place. What you're asking here is uh, just such a fundamental question. And, and I usually, just to sort of give it a little bit of uh, levity, I'll say, so take the red pill and everything <laughs> stays the same, but take this blue pill and I'll show you how deep this rabbit hole really goes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we're always trying to just show people that it is so complicated and complex. In, in that history, in the, you know, the post-Confederation assimilation policy, like you say, to terminology, it's not just in the Indian Act, it's also in the Constitution Act, right. 1982, Section right. 35 mm-hmm. references in uh, subsection 2, the uh, Aboriginal and treaty rights are guaranteed to the Indian, Inuit, and mm. Métis peoples. Right. Yeah, so we're we're definitely stuck with the term for a while. But, you know, I say stuck, my, you know, when I'm talking to the learners, my favorite answer is it depends, though, because there's some people who are still really proud to be Indians. Mm. And, and then there's some people who are deeply offended by being called, hey, man, mm. don't call me that. I'm called that because Columbus was lost right. and he was blown off course and right. Canada tried to assimilate us. I mean, they will give yeah. you a painful lecture oh, yeah. on For why sure. they don't want to be Indian. Yep. And so, you know, just in terms of our uh, respect model, we mm-hmm. tell people just respect whatever terminology it yeah. is that they're using. And right. actually for my uh, corporate clients, I'll actually tell them to call the band office after hours, star 67, so they don't see some big corporate mm-hmm. Address coming in on call display, but listen to the recorded message and it'll say you've reached West Bank First Nation, our office hours are 830 to 4, you've reached the Penticton Indian Band Office, our office hours. So whatever you hear on the answering machine, I'll tell them is what you should use when you go to meet with them. Because if they were uncomfortable with it, they would change and it would be reflected in their, in their answering machine. And of course, even better to, to speak with someone in person. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You want to be addressed. Yeah. And and I will tell them that too. Mm. So we don't get to these meetings without, you know, somebody on their side organizing. And and those are great resource people who can say, so what is the proper terminology and who do I acknowledge? uh, Do I, is it elders or first then? chiefs or chiefs mm-hmm. and elders, mm-hmm. you know, there's some really great technical questions. If you, you know, should I bring gifts? A lot of people right. assume you should bring a gift right. to a meeting. And so yeah. we talk about it in the book, right. you know, uh, gifts only if they're expecting it. Right. And, and then if they are, you've got to find out what it is they're actually yes, expecting. Exactly. So I remember doing a workshop for a food group one time and, and the start of the day we said, you know, we're so happy you're here. We're going to we're going to learn from you. And at the end of the day, we've got a gift. And so we work our way through the material. And I went through that. And at the end of the day, they were like, so we really want to thank you for coming, but we're not sure we should. Uh, you talked about gifts and we assumed you'd want a gift. And I said, well, why don't you just give me the gift? And, <laughs> and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell, we'll right. just use it as a, a learning moment. And mm-hmm. so they presented me with a really nice pouch of blue drum tobacco, which mm-hmm. they had heard right. indigenous peoples expect tobacco after right. meetings and, and so I accepted it graciously, yeah. and I said, this is a great gift. Thank right. you very much. It's awesome. And they were like, really? And I said, no, actually, <laughs> I don't use it personally. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't use it spiritually. It's where I come, those big transformation yep. masks. We don't, yeah. we don't do smudges yes. and sweats. I don't, I don't even understand that, really. Those are completely different people, and, yeah. and I would have to ask a lot of questions myself. And so, but it was a good sort of uh, learnable moment just in terms of, you know, people assuming Yes, uh, someone I studied with, in fact, was talking to me about um, on Six Nations about tobacco, and they said, mm. you know, it's it's traditional tobacco we're supposed to receive, yeah. not, not even smoking tobacco. Yeah, it's traditional, yeah. which is, not many people even know. There's a difference between the traditional tobacco plant and the tobacco plant that gets turned into cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and he received a, much like you, we received a package from someone, a non-indigenous person that was regular smoking mm. tobacco. Yeah, yeah. And I said, aren't they supposed to give you traditional tobacco? He goes, yeah, but I'll use it. Traditional <laughs> so, leaf. Know. Yeah, yeah. And I did say the same thing. <laughs> Too. I was like, thank you for this. If you don't mind me re-gifting it, I, <laughs> That's right. there's somewhere I'm going pretty soon that I can just re-gift. So. You know, you, you mentioned this thing earlier about the red and the blue pill. And, you know, I, th- I thought, you know, th- there really is some relevance to that in terms of what Canadians know or don't know in terms of the veil being pulled over their eyes mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. you know, the history of Indigenous people. Mm-hmm, so... I'm just wondering when you when you are in your teaching moments, mm-hmm. um, you you started talking about yeah we're getting somewhere now we're getting mm-hmm. into some some interesting questions. 
I can just imagine a lot of the glazed eyes that are staring back at you, though, in terms of when you start opening up this this conversation. Uh, but it must be also fascinating at the same time because I'm I'm sure you get a lot of the same questions, but I'm sure at the same time you get some some interesting questions coming at you. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know there, there's there's some uh, really great work that you have to do to make people even feel comfortable asking mm. questions, mm. right? Like mm-hmm. they're still nervous when I sure. go into a room and yeah. I'm there as a trainer, yeah. you know. Um, so one of the things I always do when I'm with a group of learners is I'll say, you know, this is a going to be this is really your day the questions you ask will drive what this day looks and mm-hmm. feels like if you're if you're from accounting mm-hmm. and you are the only one that asks questions today for everybody else sitting here this will sound like an accounting presentation so <laughs> i really encourage you to ask questions mm-hmm. and and if you're worried about how your question might sound you can always throw a what do you say to those people that say this bob <laughs> in front of your question because i'm just trying to create a safe environment because right. most people are really they're concerned about offending yeah, and of asking course. and they say they use the wrong term and they've been you know not physically beat up but certainly mm-hmm. beat up by yeah. you know a community member somewhere and they're they're really you know, if we're if we're going to do this work of reconciliation, we can't be afraid to talk to each other and make mistakes and mm-hmm. to be empathetic, just knowing that people don't know what they don't know as an Indigenous person. You know, that those are going to be helpful activities and and that, you know, Canadians can feel comfortable really yes. um, asking questions because yeah. the only way you get to the blue pill and way down the rabbit hole is they feel comfortable asking. Yeah. And when they get there... You can see the change. Like I, as a trainer, my, my clients always ask me, when do you know you're making success? At the beginning of the day, they're going to be asking why this and why that. And, but by the end of the day, we'll know we've made progress because they'll be saying, how and what can I do? And I think that that's my measure. And I'll, so I'll tell my clients, you come in and sit in our class, you'll see somewhere after the historical piece, the, the, so what can we do about this and how yeah. can we do that? They'll right. start to ask positive questions right. and they will have that sense of history yeah. to say that that really didn't work and we got to stop doing that. It just, it's not what we value as a Canadian society and Canadians. And a lot of times, you know, you were, you were right. I do read audiences very well and I can see people, um, you know, shaking their heads. I, you know, I can't believe this and just anger from mums when you're talking about residential mm-hmm. schools and, you know, so you, you get the whole range of emotions and I work really hard to, uh, get people emotional. So, mm. you know, they have to, they have to be uh, learners who are willing to hear the, the blue pill message. Yeah. And it's a hard one. It's a tough, you know, it's really holding up a mirror and saying, this is, this is what you look like. And, and, uh, but if you can, if you can get them to that phase, feel comfortable and safe and asking questions there, there's a point there where they start to think, yeah, you know what, I think this, we've got to change this and we've got to make it better for, for uh, people, this is uh, an affront to who we are as Canadians. That's what I experience. So with that, what do you say to people when they ask you that question about what can we do, basically? Mm-hmm. Because the average person, how much power do you think the average person has in terms of making that change? I think they have a lot. You know, they do influence politicians and uh, corporations influence, you know, the, the employers they work with, the governments they work for. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have a lot of uh, influence. And um, so if we can get them supportive, like I, I can remember in BC, I was doing some work on a, on a treaty called the Niska Treaty. And, mm-hmm. you know, they came in in the morning, why should we do this? And, mm-hmm. you know, this is not right and it's not fair. But by the time they left, they were, how come it's not done yet? And how come it's <laughs> taking so long? Right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, just, just helping people get to, get to that piece of the conversation so they actually have a lot of things things that they can do you know just little things at the dinner table Mm. you know when they hear a myth or a misconception one of my best friends on indigenous people doug said he was having a dinner party and one of his guests started just sort of you know railing away and all he said at the dinner party was look uh, i hear what you're saying clem but a lot of what you're saying there's just not a lot of truth to and and that's all he had to say to to sort of put a stop to Mm. what could have just turned into a really tense situation and and uh, he just wasn't comfortable like but those little steps are just such big steps in terms of uh, changing perceptions and attitude and so one of the things that that you kind of mentioned and well it's right in it's right in your title about about reconciling Mm -hmm. and of course some indigenous people would say 
we have nothing to reconcile. It's, it's Canada that has to reconcile. It's the non-Indigenous people that have to reconcile with us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think um, it's hard to have just one side reconcile and not the other. And I've been, part of our work on our side is to say, yeah, we, we've not been treated well for 130 years, but we've got to be able to turn that corner and say, you know what, but this is, I think things can be different in the future. And so I think there's some, some work there, mm-hmm. like on ourselves, that mm-hmm. we have to do to do this reconciliatory sure. piece. And um, So Bob, on that, that's a, that's a good point, that it is two-sided, of course. And you mentioned 130 years of unwell treatment, but it caused a lot of damage. <clears throat> over yeah. generations of generations, intergenerational trauma has is still a big non-visual thing that you can't see, but it is there. Mm-hmm. So unfathomable, unimaginable, yeah. almost unbelievable to the average Canadian. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, as, what I as you've been pointing out. For yeah, sure. yeah. So you know, looking at that, there is this road that we want to go down to reach equality, to to have this this understanding. There is a big cultural divide still Mm -hmm. there is the damage on top of that that has been put on indigenous people in many cases there's still suffering Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how do we how do we get the the non-indigenous population to understand that side that there is this this damage that needs to be looked at as well you can't see it but it's there you know Mm -hmm. when you look at the guy on broken on the street yeah you know there's there's a reason for that he's not just a drunk he's not just a whatever there's a reason for that happening. And and how do we get people to understand that? And I think that's what 21 things did Mm. for the average Canadian. Okay. Because we didn't say, here's what happened and here's the connection. Right. We just talked about the 21 things. And I think for them to be able to look at the information and say, huh, I I can see why there would be so many problems here that why can't they just pick themselves up by their bootstraps (laughs) and look after themselves and, you know, when are you going to get over it? And, and, <laughs> and so I think people just have to go through and just mm. sort of see it a little bit differently sometimes. Right. And it's just a way for people to answer, well, why, why are they lazy? And then you'd realize that they weren't, they had to get permits to sell yeah. anything off of reserves right. anywhere. Yeah. And that's because Canada believed if they were successful, they had radio stations and casinos and mm. banks and you yeah. know, retail establishments. Canada believed in the 1960s if there was a band like that, they would never assimilate. And so it was a direct affront to their mm-hmm. assimilation That's policy. Right. And, yeah. But, you know, for the average Canadian to go, huh, they're not subject to seizure under legal process. They don't own the house, so they can't right. have collateral. Yeah, exactly. they, uh, they weren't even allowed to sell till recently. There's right. a reason these people are, yeah. are well, I've perceived them as lazy up until now. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, so I think that's, Sort of, you have to, you have to yeah. sort of give people a chance to make their own conclusions. If you try to tell them, it would be right. just like what we tried to yes. do with the survivors who are still in the healing process out right. of residential schools, you know. And, mm. and I, I've had some great conversations with survivors mm. and community people. Mm. You know, you've got to go hard. You've got to hit them over the head. And, right. and I'm like, you know, it probably didn't work for you. Why would we expect it to work for them? We've got mm-hmm. to let them draw their own conclusions. We've got to give them a safe space yeah. to to learn about history and culture and issues. And, you know, that's probably the, the best chance that we have. And I think 15 years of uh, high schools and grade schools and colleges and universities, all of that contribution, the corporate sector, governments, it's going to have a pretty profound impact, but it's going to take about 15 years. It's mm-hmm. not going to happen in, in a couple. Bob, that's a great spot for us to take a pause. We will be right back on A Moment of Truth and Element FM with Bob Joseph and uh, talking to him about his books, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act and Indigenous Relations, Insights, Tips and Suggestions to Make Reconciliation a Reality. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest is Bob Joseph. He has written a couple of books. He's also an Indigenous Relations trainer. He's been doing that for quite a number of years. And that's where these books came out of his first book, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. And then just recently, his book, Indigenous Relations, Insights and Tips and Suggestions to Make Reconciliation a Reality. Bob, is there one thing that that you have found that your first book, The 21 Things, that has particularly hit a core with people, one one 
one thing from that? It's funny, the one that people ask me about a lot is the pool hall one. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we weren't, weren't able to go to pool halls. So yeah. It's just interesting what, you mm. know, what people gravitate to. And so I get questions about pool halls and I play a pretty mean game of snooker. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. But uh, yeah, you know, they, they're, they're curious about why the ban from pool halls and why, you know, you can't drink at a public place yeah. and, you know, losing status. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's the one, yeah, if I just think about, you know, of all the things you could ask me, pool yeah. halls, okay. So right. you just mentioned losing status. It, it, it's, you know, that pervasive uh, thing that goes through the, the Indian Act, talking about women, mm-hmm. uh, if they if they marry, uh, they lose their status, the kids lose their status, which, of course, I think was reversed uh, at some point. Yeah. Uh, so right in the mid-80s, 84, yeah. 85, the amendment, Bill C-31, mm. came out. And up until that time, Indian women who married non-Indian men would lose their status and right. sword their children, and uh, which was very discriminatory um, for women where the men could marry a non-Indigenous woman. She could be from anywhere in the world and she would become a status Indian. And so uh, Bill C-31 really uh, changed that around, made it more equal if that's a way that we want to try and think or, or, you know, talk about it. And uh, since that time, um, Indian women who marry non-Indian men, she doesn't lose her status. Their children gain Mm. it. Mm -hmm. And it works the same for the men. Mm. Indian Mm -hmm. men who marry non-Indian women, those women no longer gain their status, but their children do. Um, The interesting thing about status, and and people want to usually spend, like I could do a course on status Indian questions. Mm. And I tell people in my course just to stop them from you know, mm. diving into the nitty gritty about mm. what it takes to be a status Indian, right. because I think there's a more important trend there and Canadians don't quite see it. And I think maybe on some level, um, some communities don't either. And the trend is self-determination. Mm. Nobody in Ottawa gets to tell us who our people are anymore. Right. That's something that we should control, that we should right. have a say in, mm-hmm. because the Indian Act was actually designed to remove people from the list, Ooh, yeah. not actually add it. <laughs> right. And so... It, it, I try to tell people, for me, it seems odd that mm. there would be people in society fighting to be reinstated when mm. the long-term trend is to actually not have uh, somebody in Ottawa tell you who your people are. Right. And so I just try to help, uh, you know, sort of the average Canadian yeah. understand. And actually, Stats Canada just uh, is predicting that by 2052, there'll be no longer any status Indians. That's when they're projecting their clock out time mm. will be just mm. because of the intermarriage. Right. And I, I always tell, uh, tell the learners that, but it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing when you know the sort of broader political objective, which maybe isn't always understood by the grassroots people, is self-determination. Mm. Nobody in Ottawa gets to tell us who our people are anymore. And I actually go and help communities, like I'll do training for communities mm-hmm. um, from time to time. And I was invited to a community, and at the start of the meeting they said, Bob, we brought you here because you've got this knowledge of all of this history and this mm-hmm. overview, and we're hoping you can just help give us insights along the way. But we're, we're about to engage in a nation-building process where we're going to try and grow our nation and protect all of our people, not just some of our people. And so they started talking about some of the things that they were working on, and the, the subject of status came up. And one of the first things that a council member said was, oh, yeah, and we've got to make sure we protect the status people. And uh, so I put my hand up politely and I said, uh, pardon my interruption, but you've invited me to give you insights here today. And I want to just share with you what I'm seeing so far. Mm. When I got here, you talked about a process that would look after all of your people, and right. which is great. That's totally nation building. You should do that. But right now we're talking about excluding probably over half of your people, the non-status Indian right. members of your community, members of, of mm. your nation, mm-hmm. but not members of your band. Yes. And so I just want to double check, are you trying to look after everybody or just some of your people? Right. Because if uh, it doesn't matter to me, I've got really yeah. no skin in this game. I'll just advise you right. on what, you know, what yeah. works. But I, but I definitely heard you say, I want to, we want to look after all of our people. So if you're worried just about your status Indians, that's, you're not going to look after all of your people. Mm. You've lost a lot of them already. Right. And so. If you're going to do self-determination, you decide how that looks, how you get to be a member, and you know you got to be more inclusive. And so it was, it was a great conversation, just in terms of picking up on the, you know, the yeah. status and the non-status. Yeah. And like I say, there's actually people fighting to become status. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, a couple of big Supreme yeah. Court of Canada decisions. Some of my uh, yeah. Métis friends yeah. were calling me, Bob, hey, you know, Métis are, they fit underneath the definition of an Indian right. in, uh, in the mm-hmm. Constitution Act. What do you, what do you think? Am I going to, mm-hmm. am I going to be tax exempt? And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, g- good luck with that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually trying to get people off that list yeah. and you're going to have to fight Revenue Canada and Indian Affairs to get you included as a, uh, and I just don't see that happen because that's not the direction things are going in at all. Well, right? that that also opens up another door when you when you talk about uh, uh, tax exemption and all of that. There's mm-hmm. even misconceptions around that, right? There's, there's yeah. that's what I'm saying like all these these levels where people think that Indigenous people are are a burden on the tax dollar when mm-hmm. they don't understand the whole treaty process and they don't yeah. understand the relationship between the nations and the treaties that have been worked out with the crown and, and the and, and the government yeah, about yeah. obligations on the crown's part and how they haven't lived up to that whole side of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, going back to this whole structure that it was meant to just eliminate people and uh, indigenous people. And Eventually assimilate. they'd be gone and we wouldn't even be talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, but so, it didn't work. Assimilation yeah. totally failed. Yeah. And we abandoned it. We're, yeah. We actually... By the time we patriate the Constitution in 1982, mm. we say that we're going to recognize and affirm the existing mm. Aboriginal mm. treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples in Canada. So that's Section 35 of the Constitution Act. And, uh, so, you know, yeah. so, so what do you think uh, then, and I'm sure maybe this question has, comes up, uh, about the political will to make change? Uh, I think that the political will is there to change it, People don't want to give up things, right? Mm-hmm. If we think about um, the income tax exemption, mm. if I, if you're a if status you're Indian, Indian, yeah, status Indian work on yeah. reserve, yeah. paid on reserve, right. you know, you're 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 fighting a pretty hard uphill battle, and I, and I don't think that's even an Indian thing. That's just people not wanting to pay taxes, <laughs> right? I mean, nobody wants to pay taxes, and certainly nobody right. wants to pay more. So to me, that's not really an Indian thing. Mm. But certainly for those status Indians who could mm. get the plum job working mm. at the band office, mm-hmm. you know, one of the few places where you can right. get an on-reserve right. income, you know, for mm. many communities, mm. the only place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there'd be some resistance to negotiating a treaty, you sure. know, to that would see you give up your exemption because those mm-hmm. treaties have to be ratified right. or it doesn't have to be a treaty. It could be a self-government agreement, a reconciliation agreement. We can call yeah. it different things, mm-hmm. uh, but it is sort of negotiated settlements. But if you look at uh, communities, I've seen communities who as part of the treaty process have agreed to uh, get rid of the exemption. Yeah, we don't want the taxation exemption anymore. And some other people, whoa, whoa, we don't want to, we, we don't want to pay taxes, mm. but the uh, tax exemption lives in the Indian Act, section 87 yeah. of the Indian Act. Yeah. So if you're going to negotiate a treaty in self-government or you already have a treaty, you just need to do the self-government piece. Um, <clears throat> there, there's communities there that have said, let's get rid of this uh, exemption. And for that average individual taxpayer, no, I don't, I don't want to get rid of the exemption, but if you're thinking about the long-term survival of your nation, you need to get rid of the tax exemption. And how do you balance that with with the the idea that that the government has not lived up to its treaty obligations, right? Because that's probably part and parcel of why uh, First Nations uh, have have issue with with that when when there's there's yeah. been that. Oh, there's there's no right? question. There's a there's a huge connection to get rid of the exemption is actually a good thing, at least according to uh, some communities. Mm. And I looked at their logic. Why would you give up the taxation exemption, right? And what they thought, and I thought it made sense, was if our people are paying taxes, then we get taxpayer equity funding for programs Mm. available to other people. So instead of $5,500 per year per child to send your kids K through 12 education, you get $8,500. So if you're looking at it from a nation building perspective, it totally makes sense that your people are paying taxes and that they're going to get the taxpayer equity funding, which will pull up their education levels, which means better jobs and and all of that kind of stuff. I know some people that would challenge that and say, hey, they're <laughs> supposed to be doing this anyway, right? Yeah, Regardless. yeah, yeah. And I think that's all going to happen. Yeah. None of this is just going to happen with, uh, you know, let's let's do this. I mean, yeah. everything's going to be a fight. And right. that, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, if anything, Indigenous peoples are resilient. They've been right. at it for a hundred. They're the most right. patient people I've ever seen. So, you know, we look at treaties recently in Ontario here, they were supposed to be making annuity payments and they just lost in court and now they're going to be, 
you know, they're going to start getting those payouts that they were supposed to have gotten for mm. signing the treaty and that first, right. that first lump sum payment mm. is going to be $1.2 billion, but then it'll be ongoing and mm. it'll be more indexed for inflation. Sure, the Crown hasn't always lived up to that, and we understand why, because the Indian Act was trying to get rid of them, so we didn't right. have to. Right. So that, that's obvious. It all disappeared. Yeah. yeah. But if we can get to this other stage where we have jurisdiction over mm. lands and resources mm-hmm. and we're sharing in the wealth of yep. those lands, we can do a much better job of protecting our nations. And this isn't just a Canadian experience. I, was, uh, I went to uh, the States with the family a few years ago to the Magic Kingdom, Florida. Mm. And just mm. before we were heading down there, mm. I um, noticed that uh, the international media had picked up on the Seminole tribe of oh, South yeah. Florida. Yeah. And the Seminoles had picked up the Hard Rock Cafe and international gaming and food chain. And I was like, wow, billion-dollar yes. equity market transaction. I said yeah. to my wife, yeah. you know, can we carve off a day of the Magic Kingdom and go see the Seminoles? Mm. They have a cultural center mm. and some ecotourism stuff. Yeah. And so we went down to the Seminole cultural center and I signed in, you know, mm-hmm. Aksum Nakwala, nice, you know, yeah, yeah. Wawainuk tribe. And I was hoping they would look at the signature because yeah. they were, they were looking at everybody. And I saw it gave my traditional name and, right. and uh, the person spun around the book and looked at it, spun it back and then ran into the back of the room and out came, you know, somebody yeah. of rank within nice. the, in the nation. And they were like, Hey, uh, you Indian. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, I said, yeah, I come from a community in uh, British Columbia. And mm. they said, would you like a tour? And that's what I wanted to happen because nice. I wanted to find out yeah, about yeah. this yeah. billion dollar equity market transaction. Yeah. So we, we started talking and, and, uh, finally got to, you know, a point where I felt it was okay to ask. Mm. I said, Seminole tribe people, how many, how many of you, mm. like, what are we talking here? And mm. they said, 1200. I said, wow, 1200 And you just bought Hard Rock for like a billion dollars. Right. And they were like, yeah. And I said, so help me understand, you know, how do you unlock the power of 1,200 people to buy a billion yeah. dollar stock market company? Yeah. What What's the thinking process? And they, they actually could point to one conversation. 1983, we're sitting around tribal council table. And what we decided was if we we're going to sit around and wait for the bureau to look after us, we're never going to get anywhere. Yep. We need to True. get involved in this for world. Sure. And so on that decision, they said, we're going to, we're going to get involved in the world. And they, the first thing they did was they opened up a bingo. Yeah. And a, a, like a Wednesday night bingo in mm-hmm. their rec mm-hmm. center. Mm-hmm. And then it grew to full time and then they bought one and they bought two and they bought five and then they bought a casino and it just kept leveraging up nice. to the point where they're able to buy the hard rock and with a group of 1200 people, but it really nice. just takes that kind of a community decision sure. to, sure. to be the self-reliant people mm-hmm. that we always were. It's not going to go back to the way it was, yeah. but we've got yeah. to try and figure out how to yeah. live and work and reconcile the yeah. change and that history and that culture where it is today, just in terms of, um, peoples and communities. So Appreciate great. you saying that. So you mentioned also that indigenous people are very patient people. Mm-hmm. That ties in with the, the cultural difference between, you know, how we, how we look at things and how the non-indigenous world looks at things. Mm-hmm. And, and there's that, that divide. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a, you know, you mentioned about, about, uh, you know, changing or, 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 or moving forward in business or technology or whatever it is, but not at all costs. Yeah. And I think that's because that the, the indigenous people have that innate built-in idea of responsibility to the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you made reference in your book about how just because someone isn't cultivating land mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's not being used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I'm referring to. You know, indigenous yeah. person might look at land and go, yeah, well, that's a great place for the birds, for the animals, you know, a great place for all of the, the world to be taken care of. Yeah, uh, It's a place for Mother Earth. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a non-indigenous person just looks at it and goes, we got to plow all that stuff down. we got to build. we got to, you know. It's a resource to be utilized. <laughs> exactly, and, you right. know, we're supposed to generate wealth, <laughs> yeah. you know. kind of flashes me back to Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, yeah, you know, where he's got that slide <laughs> yeah, and yeah. there's a big pile of gold and yeah. then there's the planet, right? Right. And, uh, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, so there definitely is that cultural difference. So mm. they're not against development, but it can't mm. be development at all costs. Yeah. So I think um, there's a way to do it that's uh, mm. far more sustainable. Look at the Teltan. The Teltan nation um, got into uh, mining. They're pretty big players, I think, in, mm. in the mining space. Mm-hmm. Um, when they, they signed on to um, a project, the province took that as, okay, the Teltans want mining. Let's build mm-hmm. this big transmission line and we'll have 15 mines. And and it was funny because the Teltans were like, whoa, hey, you know, we, we're not, we don't 
why do we have to build 15 mines mm. right now? Why can't we just build one mine and right. people can work there for 40 years? Yeah. Then we'll build another mine. And mm-hmm. but like you say, there's always this clash of yeah. values. If I think about miners, we got to get these minerals out of the ground now. Yeah, We're going to yeah. miss the market. Right. And, you know, if I, I, I'm always telling those guys, look, if, you, if that's what you're saying to them, they just don't believe it because in their experience, those minerals have only ever gone up. Right. They've never gone down like gold is, you know, always mm-hmm. just climbed and climbed and climbed. Right. So, you know, just the cultural, cultural value that way. Um, you know, some of their, their practices and that, that's what, you know, we get into the duty to consult and accommodate, mm-hmm. have original mm-hmm. rights. It's yeah. trying to find ways to do these things that yeah. lets, you know, the people that were harvesting wild rice and yeah. Ontario still harvest wild rice. Yeah. Those are yeah, yeah. important things yeah. to, to, uh, those people. So, if we work hard to try and find ways to peaceably coexist, like it said in the Royal Proclamation, mm. they're not to mm. be molested or mm-hmm. disturbed in the possession of such parts of dominions yeah. and territories. I think we can do a lot of uh, really um, great things, but it's certainly getting across the cultural divide. And yeah. I, I gave you the story, of course, about the, you know, we were working less than nine weeks <laughs> and we weren't paying taxes. <laughs> that's I, right. I think we can teach people something yeah. here. They just and that's something else that's been overlooked is, mm-hmm. is that in all that wonderful indigenous knowledge that has not been tapped into. It's mm-hmm. a perfect example of that. Yeah. And that indigenous knowledge often starts with creation. Mm-hmm. They, they believe they're in a place in the world that was given to them by the creator. Mm-hmm. It's theirs to use, to protect, to benefit mm-hmm. from, which yep. means it's not going to sit idle. And I, don't, yep. I haven't found a community yet that had that view. They utilize mm-hmm. their lands and resources. Humans have impacts. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. why they're not against development. They yeah. were developing even yeah. before contact. There right. were trade relationships, right. like the, the trade network yeah. maps in the Western right. Hemisphere clear across the country. Right. From British Columbia to yeah. Mazatlan and yeah. Puerto Vallarta, yeah. we were hard workers. We were traders. Some yep. of us were farmers, like the people here in this yeah. part of the world, and yeah. others were fishers. Others were hunter gatherers. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, there was there was definitely uh, an economy. Uh, so at the end of of your twenty one things, you, you move on. You know, if if not the Indian Act, then what? Right? Yeah, I, I'm guessing nation to nation relationships. Mm-hmm. Is probably the the best way to approach things. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And we've been doing that since the Royal Proclamation. Mm. King George recognized them as nations or tribes. Any new agreements are mm. always done nation mm. to nation. Um, and um, so I think whatever the negotiated settlement is with uh, with uh, governments, mm. it'll require federal and provincial governments and. Um, I think there's a space there for indigenous peoples to have a say in how their lands will be developed mm. and what will happen to their lands and to protect their cultures and their people and, you know, all of those very uh, noble objectives that they, they have the right to do. They have mm. an inherent right. It was given to them by the creator. It's right. theirs to use to protect, to benefit from. Nobody gave them their government and it can't be. And so... Sometimes um, governments come at the conversation with an extinguishment policy. We're going to, the effective date of the self-government mm. agreement and, mm. and that kind of stuff makes some of the political leaders upset. Oh, well, what do you mean effective date? We, mm. we already had self-government. Right. So you're not giving this to us. Right, so right. You know, so there's some philosophical yeah. conversations sure. that both sides will, yeah. you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but we have seen it happen mm. and we have seen great things happen as a result of agreements. Mm. And uh, mm. I always tell people my, my test for whether or not they're working is how much you hear about them. And mm. if you don't hear about them, they're probably working. Mm. What you usually hear about yes, are the things the, that aren't working, working. <laughs> right? Very true. Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering if there's something else of, of your second book that just was released, The Indigenous Relations, Insights, Tips, and Suggestions to Make Reconciliation a Reality is is there something else in this book that we haven't touched on that you think is big to, to refer to or talk and share with people? Well, I think, you know, we, we look at the three selves, self-determination, self-government, and self-reliance. Mm-hmm. And I hear self-determination used in a governance context. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't mind how the, the hairs get split here. Sure. But I think that that is the, um, the next big step should be for the communities to have a conversation about what that self-government looks like. How do we build mm. transparent and accountable governments to the to the people that they're supposed to be served as opposed to being accountable to Indian affairs? Right. And I think that's got to be the first piece of work. It would just seem to make sense that you get your 
government in place and that your people are happy and, and it's responsive to them and their needs, then you go and make whatever arrangement suits your nation best. So I think we have that opportunity right now. But mm. if the uh, federal liberals are reelected, Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Indigenous Northern mm. Affairs Canada, has been traveling around the country consulting, engaging, yes. information sharing with the chiefs. And uh, I was at a, a conference where she spoke and she shared a story. You know, at every one of these conferences, she asks the chiefs, what do you see as the biggest impediment to yes. changing, getting rid of, moving away from the Indian Act? Right. And and uh, she said, usually you get some to break up into groups of 10 and they, you know, some of them put together essays and, you know, dissertations. Mm. <laughs> but she was sitting across from this one chief in this one venue and, uh, she noticed he had a black book and a pen and he wrote down one word and then he closed the book and he didn't talk to anybody and he just kind of sat back. Mm. And she's like, that's interesting. She's made a note to herself. And when they came back, they did a big debrief, right. a bunch of tables, you know, just all over the map about what, t what the biggest impediment to getting rid of the Indian Act was and what they could do. And, and she thought it was all great. You know, thanks for the feedback. Right. Uh, but you, sir, you wrote down in your book one word and I saw you close your book. I'm really curious about about what it is you wrote in that book. And uh, would you mind sharing it with everybody? He said, oh yeah, I'll share it with you. And he opened up the book to the page where he wrote down one word. And he said, your question was, what do you see as the biggest impediment to getting rid of the Indian Act? And I wrote, you. <laughs> 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 which is which is true. Uh, but here, here, at least right now, we have a, a minister who, mm. if they're reelected, will carry into the next term, hopefully, mm will uh, continue to push down the road of exploring self-governments with the nations yeah. that are ready, willing, and able, um, and uh, come up with, uh, you know, some solutions to really start to move away from the Indian Act. And, and I know there's lots of debate. There's people, we should keep the Act, we mm. should get rid of it. And yeah. I'm, I'm definitely in the get rid of it camp, right. mm. um, because I, I think the people that are saying keep it are assuming that it's not doing more harm, but mm. it's like a mm -hmm. piece of net that's just floating around the ocean. Right. It's just, right. it's just harming indiscriminately. Yes. And that just needs to end sooner than right. later. So there, right. there could be some, a whole bunch of really good conversation about dismantle change. Mm -hmm. and, you know, ultimately it's an instrument designed to assimilate it. Yeah. There, what good can come out of that by right. keeping it band-aided it forward? And I can remember when, um, there was a piece in there, Section 32.1, it talked about the sale or barter of produce. It said, you know, you couldn't sell, barter, exchange, right. give or otherwise right. dispose of mm -hmm. cattle or other animals, grain or hay. With, I mean, one of the one of the really most offensive pieces of legislation. And there was this argument going on nationally about whether it should be repealed. The, the government of the day was saying we should repeal this and the chiefs were saying no. And I'm always curious what's, what the heck's going on here. And... Uh, their, their concern at that time was that we take out Section 32.1 and the other more embarrassing and egregious sort of pieces of the Indian Act, mm. but we band-aid it forward another 10, 15, 20 years. And that was their concern. Don't repeal. Don't do anything to this act. Let's focus on really what is the next step in mm. this relationship, this nation-to-nation -nation mm -hmm. mm -hmm. relationship with indigenous peoples. And it's a step without the Indian Act self-governing self-determining, and most importantly, self-reliant. If you're relying on the government, like the Seminoles, yeah. they realized if you rely on them to look after your people, you're not going to be well looked after. Yeah. Uh, Bob, let me ask you this. Um, you know, we've seen even, even recently, though, where we had a community in northern Ontario that was dealing with flooding, they, their lands flooded, and uh, they've been waiting and waiting for the community to be moved mm -hmm. you know, over 10 years, I believe. It is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the government has not, you know, and I think only recently now they're starting to maybe do something. Mm -hmm. And anywhere else in Canada, as we know, if it was another community, that would be done. It would be taken care of. They're already so, buying houses in other uh, flooded right, parts yeah, of the country. Right. Yeah, yeah. So when we see that, mm -hmm. what does that say to you in terms of, again, going back to this political will I was mm -hmm. asking about, in terms of yeah. really making change and really dealing honestly, openly, and and in, in, a, in a, a very positive manner to make changes. Yeah, I think that those are always going to be challenges. That's with the Indian Act. I mean, obviously one of the jobs that the department has to do is to keep the costs down and, you know, I'm not, I'm not justifying what it's mm -hmm. doing. I'm just saying these are its behaviors, right? And is it it? It's because it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a document, but it, again, going back, it's people. People, people interpret, people make the changes, people mm -hmm. implement these things. Yeah, yeah. 
So I think that's the um, that's the main piece. Where if we're if we're relying on it for anything, we're going to be hugely disappointed. Mm-hmm. And we need to start to work on the governance piece right. and get other funding relationships into place, taxpayer equity funding and revenue resource sharing. That's the only way you're going to get anything done effectively. You mm-hmm. know, let's get this off of the evening news maneuver. Yeah. That's really yeah. what that is, right? So I see what you're saying. It, even though even though it is people imp- implementing this, mm. the Indian Act has a great deal to do with with when and how because of that, uh, the, the, the way it limits things and it doesn't allow for, as you mentioned about other municipalities that have access to dollars, have access to the tax base, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I, I hear what you're saying. I think I think some indigenous people would say, but it's the government's fiduciary responsibility to to do this kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. Yeah, the fiduciary duty really shipwrecks us, and <laughs> yeah. it shipwrecks the government right, too, right? right. Like uh, their their concern isn't whether you get to develop. Let's mm-hmm. take a look at. Let's say yeah, I've got a reserve true. and I want to build a casino, yeah. and you know, want to do some great economic, you know, like a superstore, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the, uh, I, I go find a partner, willing mm. partner, you mm. know, somebody, Andrew, come and invest in, he's got $65 billion, come and invest with right. me, right? You know, the, the uh, <laughs> so we've got a deal. We've, we've already got a working commercial idea. Yes. I've got land, you've yep. got capital, let's go build, yeah. right? And, you know, if I'm talking to those developers, I'll say, look, that was the easy part. What yeah. you just did there. Right. Easy peasy. You, you said we're going to do this. Now you yeah. got to convince Club Fed yeah. to approve it. Right. right. And so the problem with them is the fiduciary duty. Of course. If we approve this deal between yeah. Andrew and myself to yeah. build the $65 million shopping center yes. and it goes south, right. who's on the hook for that? Yeah. The one with the fiduciary duty. So how bad does Indian Affairs, who actually yeah. has to sign off on the lease documents, mm. how bad do you think they're going to want to rush in there yeah. to sign an agreement that they will be financially accountable for if it goes south for um, one of a gajillion reasons, that and, could and you brought up happen. you bring up another good point, and that is the collateral thing. You know, if there's if it is on, on a reserve land, mm-hmm. uh, then it can't be repossessed. Legally. That's right, not subject to seizure <laughs> under legal right. process. Yeah, so that's the whole whole part of part of, of collateral uh, for mm-hmm. for actually getting a loan, but also bringing in partners that are maybe non-indigenous because they're yeah. going to go whoa. You mean I can't get what? my property? I can't get my stuff okay. back if it goes south. It's a, yeah, so yeah. yeah, it's a, it and, is a, and yeah. So like the the deal that Andrew mm-hmm. and I made took a day. Yeah. the approval process right. because Indigenous Affairs would take that shopping mall, that casino development, mm-hmm. and they would say, okay, before we approve this, we got to do stuff, and they mm-hmm. they'd be talking to the developer, Andrew, right. just so you know. Sure. Um, this is federally held crown land, yeah. and it's subject to the species at risk. You know, mm. Sarah, mm. Sarah legislation. So it's got to have a species at risk assessment on it. Mm. So if you're doing the math, you're a developer. Right. You're two federal agencies. Right. You thought this was going to be all done in two years. Yeah. Now you're two federal agencies. Come right. on, do some math here. Right. But then the Sarah people are going to show up and they're going to go, hey, is that a fish bearing body of water over there? <laughs> Where's DFO? <laughs> now you're three federal agencies, right? You still, and we already made this deal. We did this deal in a day. We're ready right. to go. We both want to turn dirt yeah. now. Right. But before um, INAC can improve, mm-hmm. they've got to bring in one other yep. party to look at it. And it's around the fiduciary duty. They've got to bring in the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. And the Department of Justice is going to come to the table and go, so if we approve this thing between Andrew and Bob on this reserve, well, we get sued in 50 years and how much are we going to have to pay? Hmm. Hmm. Right. Right. That's their job. Yeah. So the fiduciary duty, yeah. they, they have a, yeah. they're not doing a great job living up to mm. it. I think the Seminoles picked up on that, mm-hmm. even though they've got a bureau yeah. and we've got a department, sure. you know? So we, we hang a lot of help on that, but the problem yeah. is still there. The right. fiduciary duty can yeah. save you and it can shipwreck you and, yeah. it, you know, and we just don't know that changes with political stripes and, mm. Mm. But all of it is still beyond your control, which yeah. is what That's self-determination, right. yes. self-government and self-reliance is all about. And the sooner we can get to those places. And so with uh, indigenous relations, we're just trying to get Canadians comfortable yeah. with yeah. the idea. It's doable. It's yeah. possible. We don't know what model is going to work in every situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, we got to do something. Right. Can't, can't, can't. 
you know, that expression, if you keep on doing what you've always done, you'll keep on getting what you've always got. That's right. I'm sorry. It's just not going to change. True. Yeah. That's very true. (laughs) Bob, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. I really appreciate all your knowledge. I appreciate your your approach uh, in looking at these things and seeing how uh, we can possibly get out from underneath the Indian Act and move forward nation to nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think still building, uh, even without the Indian Act, building the membership of our communities and, and uh, keeping that, that going strong. Bob's book is Indigenous Relations, Insights, Tips and Suggestions to Make Reconciliation a Reality. So that's a new book. And uh, you can find that again at uh, most bookstores. Bob, Nyawa Miwech, Wanishi, and if we say on Six Nations, Onigiha. And Halakafla. I also want to say Nyawa, Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, Miigwech, and thanks for listening.